Hi, I'm Simone W. Johnson-Smith, and welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America. Are you a professional new to the United States and struggling to monetize the expertise you brought across the seas? Are you feeling misunderstood and out of touch because you're struggling to understand the unstated rules of the American culture? Each week, we'll take an in-depth look at the positive contributions immigrants are making to the American culture, marketplace, and life. Our intention is to serve as a bridge from your culture to the American culture, giving you a roadmap of tools and the language to understand the unstated rules of the American culture. Let's get started. Hello, listeners, and thank you for joining us again on another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States. We are so elated to be building a human library of immigrant stories here in the United States. Go ahead and hit that subscribe button so that you do not miss an episode. Today, we have another story for you. Yuri Damitz, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So excited. Yeah, wonderful. We're excited to have you too. Can you tell us a bit about your heritage and and from where your family originate? Mm -hmm. I'm originally from Japan, from a city called Kobe. And my parents, basically, they were born around the area, both of them. And then they moved around and then they went back to Kobe when I was six years old. And then I lived there until I left to come to California. I came here when I was 22. Wow. So you actually went back and had that full immersion for about 16 years? No, I lived in Japan for 22 years and I came here. Oh, okay. I thought you said your parents went back at six. So they went back to their original town. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they moved around in Japan. (laughs) Oh, I see. I see. So what was life like? Were you living in a big city and then moving back to a more rural area with your parents' family? Or, you know, what was the difference? My father was a businessman. They call these people salary men in Japan. So he used to work for corporate in Tokyo. And that's basically where I have all my early childhood memories from. And the life was comfortable. And my mother was a housewife. So she was always there. She would cook like homemade desserts and stuff like every day. And I was really happy with my life. And then all of a sudden, my parents decided to start a business in this very different like suburban area near Kobe. And I moved there and I like I spoke very differently from the rest of the kids because I had a Tokyo dialect and they had a different one and they used to make fun of me. And then my parents were never there because they were so busy building their business. So it was quite a big difference for me. I probably took years to get used to the new life. So that was my first hardship in life. Right. Okay. And so I I guess I'm curious what type of business and are you an only child? I have a younger brother who is two years younger than me. And my parents started a um, photo studio. They used to have, you know, when in in like 80s and 90s, they had this big photo development machines in like these stores. And then they used to sell films. So they had that retail shop. And then they also had like a studio where people come in and take pictures, like family pictures or 
anniversary pictures, things like that. Nice. Sounds interesting. I, I do love photography. But he left the corporate culture, it sounds like. He was known as a salaried man. Is that what you said? Yeah, they call they call these people salary man. Salary man. <laughs> yeah, okay. And, yeah, he had a really crazy life. This was in the 70s when Japan was coming out of post-World War II decades and the, their economy was booming. And he used to work for a steel company. He was like part of a project to build super highways in Tokyo. The whole city was booming and building like all this construction work. And he would like go to this construction site like at 1 a.m. in the morning <laughs> to check on the progress because they were building around the clock. Like they were building everything around the clock. So mm -hmm. he, he was never home. Wow. Um, yeah, he was never home. So I, I have a very limited memory of doing things together with him during this period. Wow. And then I think he wanted something better for the family. So he started a business. Right. They were busy, but hopefully they would be home at some point. And you had some more time with him as the years go by with this change in, sounds like engineer, civil engineer to a private business in photography. Quite a bit different space, right? We did. and. We used to help with the business. <laughs> like we would just go to the store and help with like checkout or, you know, we clean the store and everything. So I guess we, we hang out more often. And I think part of the reason he wanted to switch to business is for him to have enough money to send us to good schools. So my brother and I both went to private schools and they, we got really good education. So I, I think he was very proud to have made that change. Okay, very good. Sometimes those things are necessary. We don't always understand as children, you know, as I'm older, I, I, I'm putting the pieces together from my parents. But yeah, we appreciate them for their sacrifices. Yeah, they did. I think that generation definitely like being a parent equaled some sort of sacrifice. Yes, definitely. Yeah, the times were not easy and um, hard, lots of hard work. And I mean, it depends on the culture you're coming from, where you have other responsibilities for the generation before. So their parents. So I know my dad and mom just felt huge responsibilities to make sure that their parents were okay mm -hmm. while raising their children and caring for their own homes and a career outside of the home, right? Yeah. So just a lot, a lot to deal with. So, um, yeah, we do appreciate that. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to get a sense for what is life like in Japan? Never visited. It's on my list. I think Asia and is it Australia or Australasia? <laughs> that part of the world is two continents that I have not been to. So I'm quite intrigued. So can you give us a, a sense for what? Or were fun things you guys did? What's the food like? I know we know teriyaki, but locally in Japan tends to be different from the Americanized type of, you know, what we know of Japanese food. And then the culture, music, you mentioned that you guys have a different dialect from Tokyo. What's the language generally spoken? Is it Japanese across the country or is it something different? Yeah, it's Japanese. And we do have some like native indigenous people in some islands so basically it's a group of islands and there are like a big um, island in the north and then smaller like 
group of islands in the south and it spans pretty like far from north to south so we have different climate like the northern part is really close to russia and the southern part is close to taiwan um so it's subtropical in the south and in the northern part if you go to the, like a northern tip then you see these ice in the ocean <laughs> that are from russia um, so it's quite wide range of climate. It's really beautiful. We have the ocean um, everywhere. <laughs> so we get a lot of like seafood and seafood is really good. Where I came from, we had a mild climate because we were in a city in the bay. The place I came from is very famous for beef. It's Kobe beef. And I think they have the American version of Kobe beef now. It's really good. Like very, very yummy. It's interesting because it's like fatty parts scattered across and it's very soft and it's very juicy. Our city is also famous for pastries and bread because it was one of the first ports that opened to foreign countries after our country was closed for like 300 years back in, I forgot when, like 18, 1900s. Yeah, lots of people from other countries came, like European countries came, and then they taught us golf. So we had like our first golf course in the country. And then we have like all these Western influence on our food in my city. So it was, Japanese food is really interesting. There's traditional Japanese and there's also like a fusion between Japanese food and Western food. And we eat a lot of rice, seafood, lots of fried food, lots of vegetables. And when we cook at home, we used to have this rule. <laughs> you have to have at least five different dishes so that you can balance the diet, like nutrition. So I think most of the people eat pretty healthy there because they have a balanced diet of vegetables and protein and carbs. What else? Music. Oh, yeah. We have lots of different types of music, but the popular music is called J-pop, Japanese pop. And then people go to karaoke and then they sing. Karaoke used to be, I don't know now, but it used to be very popular when I was a student. So I used to go there a lot. You, basically, you go into little rooms. It's here when you go to karaoke, it's like a bar. But over there, you go into your private rooms and then you sing with your friends. And you just have a party. Like you drink and you sing and eat and drink and sing and eat. That's a lot of fun. And we have a lot of tradition in terms of art. Seems like we tend to elevate like everyday things into the form of art. For example, I used to take tea lessons. They basically made making of tea into a form of art, like performing art, so that you have a ritual of how to prepare. Uh, you you start with your with creating a fire. And in your room, like if they make a special room for tea in your house, like in some places they, they have these special rooms for tea and then you make fire in there and then you boil the water in this very specific pot and then you 
have your guests come over and then they have like specific ways of entering the room, admiring the artwork in the room, flower in the room. And then you make tea as a host and then you give sweets and the sweets mean something and all the utensils mean something. And utensils are very like rare, some rare utensils from like, I don't know, 1600s. Um, so all these things are elevated into an art form. Um, so I, I think that's very specific and interesting. I like that, actually. It makes me really want to experience this tea experience. I'm a, I don't drink much caffeine, a coffee or anything like that. So I, I'm very, I have lots of teas, herbal teas, etc. And I love teas. So um, that's very intriguing. <laughs> I wonder if there's like an experience like that, that someone uh, repurposed here in the U.S. for, for those of us here. To be yeah, able to experience I, like that. That's I'm throwing out a business idea out there. <laughs> I think it doesn't currently exist. Yeah, I think so. There's a lot of Japanese people that are here that practice it. And here in San Francisco, they have a Japanese festival in spring. And they have all sorts of exhibitions. And I think tea ceremony is one of them. So it, there must be something like where you live. Something like that. Okay, okay. Right. But the actual experience of coming into someone's home and seeing the artwork and, you know, just the uniqueness of the flowering and then the old utensils and the gathering and, you know, that cultural experience, I think, would Mm -hmm. be quite unique to go through and just kind of, you know, immerse yourself fully into what it's like for someone in Japan to actually do that. You know, I think I love culture. So I'm just going through my mind and just wondering what that would be like just to allow myself to do that for a few hours and just to be led by the host, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You should try it. (laughs) Yeah. No, it's very interesting. (laughs) Right. So it's funny because people from around the world may associate this teriyaki thing because there's so many places that when you think Japanese, you seem to equate it with teriyaki sauce or things that are flavored. When you go to the hibachi places, there's a lot of teriyaki. And um, is this similar to the Japanese culture? We do have something similar to that. I think they probably took it from Japan. But the interesting thing was, I remember some burger joint, like even McDonald's or some other burger chain, introduced teriyaki burger. And that was like um, imported from here. So, So there was no teriyaki burger in Japan. But then somebody made it here. So they imported it back to Japan. Right. So the actual teriyaki sauce originates from Japan. Is that right? Something similar to that. Yes. I do in my mind think just, you know, over the years associating longevity with Japan based on the way you guys eat that, you know, people tend to live a bit longer based on the diet that you have. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. I think so. I think the average life expectancy is a little longer. I think it's because there's a southern island where people live much longer than the rest of Japan. So maybe Mm -hmm. that's why they have much older people. Okay, very nice. Well, yeah, this whole tea experience makes me even more intrigued to really go to, is it safe to say mainland Japan? (laughs) Like we say mainland China, fully immersed into the culture there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the whole karaoke thing that you mentioned, where you meet up with friends and family and just have tea and drinks and and just have a full experience. That's very nice as well. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. 
And I'm surprised that we don't have that full experience here as, you know, something Japanese, because I could see somebody having a room somewhere and you go with a couple of friends and family and it's just recreating that entire experience for someone in the United States to experience that too. Yeah, I but, noticed you know, that a lot of Chinese people have karaoke machines at home. Oh, okay. They have yeah. it at home. Okay. Yeah. So is there a story behind how your family now, after moving from Tokyo to your family local town or more rural town and starting a business, and then you move here at 22, is there a story behind that? Yes, there is. I was actually, I felt really oppressed when I was in Japan because I'm, I think it was because I'm a woman and I, I was expected to to behave in certain ways and my parents were very strict so they wanted me to do certain things and I had curfew (laughs) when I was in college so I always felt like I wasn't very free and when I looked at the career opportunities in Japan I didn't feel like I would be able to climb the ladder and have a meaningful like responsible job there I thought maybe if I try really hard, I could. But since I was a woman, I was already disadvantaged at the time. That that, that was my thought. Over there, I think in the third year of college, you start to apply for jobs after school. And I remember recruiters used to call me looking up my name in Chinese characters, thinking that I'm a man. And then as soon as I pick up the phone and they found out I'm a woman and they're like, oh, okay, sorry, you're a woman. No, we're not interested. Oh, really? Wow. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So that was very discouraging. And my friends who, who I went to college with, they have good jobs. They have a good career. But I wasn't sure if I if I wanted to work that hard to get what I wanted. So that's when I was starting to look around and see if there are the opportunities. And at the time, I was really interested in international policy and public administration. So I decided to come to grad school for that instead of taking a job right after college. And then when I came and studied for two years, when you get a degree from college or grad school here, you get a one year Um, visa for optional training so then I ended up taking a job and I took three jobs and the last one that I I got was a really good job for me at the time so I, I ended up staying here so actually I did not intend to stay here for this long I wanted to actually travel around the world and go to other countries and work in other countries but since I got a really good job I just stayed here Okay, so you came alone, it sounds like, after finishing what we would call undergrad in Japan, right? To do your master's here, am I right? Yeah. All right, so you came alone to do your master's programs, you did an OPT. Can you share a bit about your professional background? I don't think we talked about that any. So my first job was I was a consultant, and I wasn't interested in financial industry, but it happened to be in the financial industry so my career spanned (laughs) across different countries in the financial industry after that I was there for nine years as a consultant and then I went to different banks after that 
I did a lot of analytics work and I did like marketing and strategy building. And then my last job, uh, I, I left my corporate job back in January to become a life coach. But my last job was a, a fintech startup and I was senior director of credit risk there. So I did like a lot of different things, but it was always in the financial industry. So did you study international business? Because I know you said international policy and administration there, but now you're on that financial side of things. Yeah, it was really interesting. I have no idea why I got that first job <laughs> because it was so different from what I studied. But luckily, because my undergrad was in behavioral psychology, I had a lot of data analysis and statistics. I also had that from my public administration uh, master's. So then I was able to use that to get my first job because it was like a consultant, but it, it required analytic skills. Okay. All right. Um, did you have family, friends here? How did you make the adjustment coming from Japan to the United States? Was that the first trip internationally that you made? And, you know, what were some of the possible challenges in, in, uh, in those first years? It wasn't my first international experience. I studied in France like when I was in college and I went to New Zealand when I was in high school. So I have some exposure to different cultures, but this was really the first time I lived somewhere else outside of my family's house. There was a lot of um, struggle with just establishing basic things like phone lines <laughs> and well, finding a place to live. Because everything was so different, I have never lived outside of my home. So I, I just didn't know how things worked and what I needed to get even. Luckily, I was a student, so a lot of people helped me. I didn't know how to talk to customer service people. I think I was pretty arrogant coming from Japan because like, I'm very transactional in nature over there, at least where I, when I, where I grew up, we were very transactional. So I didn't know how to speak nicely to like customer service people and I I just didn't know like how to get things done so thinking back I don't know why I I had so many trouble setting up my basic things but I did because I had no idea what I was doing but coming here as a student was probably much easier than otherwise because you already have a place you already have somewhere to belong and you can make new friends like every day and then I was learning something new. So life was very exciting. Right. Did you have English at the time? It was interesting that I was able to study at master's level, but I didn't, I was lacking in everyday vocabulary. So I had no idea what people were talking about sometimes when they used slang or when they used words that you would never learn at school, like dirty words or like basic, you know, kindergarten words, things like that. You, you don't learn in school, right? So I have yeah. no idea what people are talking about, especially like when they were joking about something. Uh, so I took it as a challenge. So somebody said, okay, if you don't understand that, you have to watch Seinfeld. So I watched Seinfeld. And then somebody told me, you have to watch Simpsons. So I watched Simpsons. So I, it was like I was trying to study watching these shows, The Way of Americans. Interesting. So you made a comment earlier about that you felt like you were arrogant coming over because of the way the Japanese culture is very transactional. Would Japan be considered in culture more like the Western world? 
very like low context because I, I would consider Japan to be high context where it's very communal. People observe you and they want to build relationships before they have any business dealings. But you're expressing something more like a Western culture. Can you elaborate a little bit about that? Yeah, something changed probably along the way after the war. The underlying context for the culture is that people differentiate between people in their internal circles and then outside of that internal circle. They have like two different ways of dealing with people. But along the way after the war, the internal circle became smaller and smaller because people started to live with the parents and the kids as opposed to like with the grandparents and all the other relatives. So the unit of family became smaller and then the internal internal circle became smaller because of that. And then for anybody outside of the circle, I don't know if it's true, but this was what I was getting when I was there, that it was expected for us to act transactionally with these people according to the specific roles we're playing. So, for example, if you are a teacher and if you are a student, you do not step over this boundary and become friends with them. If you are a cashier and if you're a customer, then the cashier has to serve the customer and you do not step over that boundary. That's what I was getting. I don't know if it's true, but that's how I was raised. Um, So I was always very aware of what my role is at the time. And over here, when I came, they didn't have that. So I was very surprised. Like some people would call the professors by their first names. And I was so super confused. Like that it's so impolite. (laughs) like what are you doing you are a student (laughs) and then people just started to chat like about their life with the cashier at the the supermarket I'm like that is so strange like what what is going on and I realized that one day well people are just seeing people as people (laughs) it's like they're not looking through the lens of like what role I am playing right now I started to behave that way and it's much easier to live that way because you don't have to like always think about, oh, what am I expected to do right now? What am I expected to say right now? And then the sonority was very important in Japan. So if you, even when you're in middle school, if you're in the second year of middle school, you can treat the first year of middle school students like pretty badly. Again, some, some places they do that when you are a newbie then you have to be super polite to people who are already there and here you don't see anything like that so that was really a big big change for me it's funny you're mentioning that my husband actually spent most of his life in another country and he was sharing with me would happen on the university campus when there were new students expressing something similar to what you're saying. It's kind of like a hazing, right? So the older students, you know, they have to be respected, the younger students, but they would go to, to, to such extent to do certain things, you know, walk the halls and, you know, inconvenience the younger students who are freshmen and, you know, freshmen and so forth. So, you know, it's interesting that that exists in your culture as well. 
there's some of that here in the United States because you hear all these fraternities and the hazing mm-hmm. that happens and all these mm-hmm. children who are being harmed by that. Mm-hmm. So it's it's funny, but in a different sense, it's happening, but not talked about very much. So a different sort of a different context in, in Japan, I guess. Uh, so I'm wondering, you know, was it easy for you to find information to... When you were 22 back then, was it easy for you to just go online to get access to internet? Did you have to take the SATs and so forth? How did you access the educational system here coming from Japan back then? Yeah, back then I was by letter. (laughs) So we did have the dial-up internet. So I could get the address and everything, but yeah, we could not attach like big files back then to emails. So everything was done by letter. So I sent a whole bunch of applications via regular mail. And then they would just wait for months. And then I hear back by mail. And I remember some schools would send me like videos to watch. (laughs) So I would just watch the videos of their like marketing materials. And then I decide to apply. Right. It was this VHS, VHS videos, not DVDs, right? (laughs) Right. Uh, Okay. Well, that was life, you know? Okay. And uh, and did you have to take the SATs? Was that like uh, something that was set up? Because someone shared with me in China that, you know, there were places that she was able to go and sit the SATs. I know that in the Caribbean as well. Today, you have places that are like formally set up for people just go and take the SATs if they're applying to universities abroad. Was that the same in Japan? Yeah, I think so. I don't remember exactly, but I I think I had to take some sort of a test for grad school. And I went into this booth and (laughs) took some tests. Right, right, right. Okay, so it turned out well. You got your your score and you got in. And what Mm -hmm. university did you, forgive me if I missed that, what university did you get into? Was it on the West Coast? Yeah, it's a, it's a very small school. It's, now it's called Middlebury School of International Studies at Monterey. It's in Monterey, California. They have some very small number of undergrads, but mostly graduate students. And they had language, policy studies, public administration, and MBA. So it was actually perfect for me because half of the student body was international students and it was a small school so it was like I I didn't have to navigate through this mass campus or anything like that so that was perfect okay awesome awesome so your goal was to get your master's you did that you got an OPT opportunity you went into working led to a consultancy and here we are did you have somewhat of a dream or did your parents have a dream for you you know, supporting you coming abroad to study in, in the United States. And, and what was that? Okay, so my parents' dream was very different from mine. <laughs> <laughs> my mother's dream. Well, my father had a different one. But my mother's dream was for me to go home after study and get married to a nice Japanese boy and become a housewife. So my, but my dream was to have a meaningful career. I wanted to really have a interesting experience working in the corporate world and climb up the ladder and have lots of responsibilities and like work on like really interesting projects to change the world. That was my idea. <laughs> so yeah, we, we butt-headed <laughs> a lot of times. 
Oh. Uh, especially when I was in my 20s until she gave up. <laughs> <laughs> and then what was your dad's? I actually don't know what his dream was, but I think he was very proud of me. I could tell that he was very, very proud of what I was doing. He wanted me to be successful in the society. Mm-hmm. Right. As he was a salary man, right? He had some exposure to the formal work and the economy. So he yeah. understood what you needed to do. I'm wondering, though, moving back to like the rural part of Japan, uh, or it may not be that rural as I'm thinking. How the whole concept of you wanting to be successful as a woman in in a, what sounds like a very conservative culture, like where does this idea? Your mom was a housewife, your dad worked out. Where did the exposure of a woman wanting to go to school and study and then climb the corporate ladder? Where do you think that came from? I, I'm very intrigued. It was actually a very it was a limiting belief. About money, I think I, I had that when I was when I had that dream because、mm. my parents had business together and they used to fight about money, and then they would、um, restrict what we wanted to do based on the fact that we are not chipping in. <laughs> I mean, we we were kids, so we couldn't work. So basically, they were saying, "So you're gonna have to listen to us as long as you live here, and we can't live anywhere else because we're kids." So I probably associated that with、uh, not having money. I don't have money myself because I can't work yet. Yeah.、Um, to like powerless, the state of powerlessness.、Mm-hmm. So I think my drive for being successful was mostly because I wanted to be independent. I wanted to be free, and I thought in order for me to be free and independent, I would have to make good money. So I used to associate. I, I no longer do this, but I used to associate money with the power. So, can you talk about you know your transition from you know deciding to stay in the United States and you know having a life here, and what were some opportunities that facilitated that? Were there some scholarships, people who were pivotal in helping you, you know, realizing the dream of you know being successful in the workplace in the formal economy? Oh yeah, so it relates to my realization that people are not as transactional here. <laughs> people actually like to build relationships. I had my、uh, my first, well, the second job I,、uh, during my OPT. I worked at a translation agency, and I didn't really like the job. But something that my boss told me at the time like stuck with me forever. He said that everything comes from people. Everything comes through people. So you have to value relationships with people.、Yes. So then that really stuck with me, and I'm an introvert, and I'm not really like I'm pretty awkward. Like I'm not really good at like making connections with people. But I made a huge effort in building relationships here, and that's like the biggest key for me to be able to assimilate and be fully successful here. Because you can't really build a good career, or you can't do anything without like good relationships, right? And all my opportunities after the consulting job, all my opportunities came through people. Yeah, people around me really. My the relationships with people around me really helped me build my career and also transition out of the corporate career as well. Right. Were there people who helped you kind of? Decode the American culture 
because since it was so different from Japan, I imagine, you know, the language and you had to learn the differences in culture and change, you know, to in order to integrate and to become part of that culture so that you could be successful. Or, you know, was there anyone who was helping you just understand the American culture better? I think people who I went to school with in the beginning, they, they helped a lot. A lot of people there used to live in Japan, so they understood both cultures. So they, they actually helped me transition. And also、um, my husband's American. Being with his family, like observing, really helped me. So I know you mentioned some, a few things that surprised you. Was there any、uh, big area of adjustment,、um, any, anything additional? That you just had so much challenge with just adapting to. It was so different from the Japanese culture that it just was so difficult for you. Yeah, I think it comes down to my feeling of being a little different because I'm not from here. Like being an immigrant was a challenge. I felt that a lot of people who are like high up in the bank, in, in these big banks, They're super eloquent. They're so good with words. They're like so influential. And I just didn't know how to do it. I felt that, well, English is a second language, of course, but I also don't know like how to speak like that in a different language. I don't have like all the cultural references. I couldn't tell what other people are thinking. And I, I, I think I attributed a lot of that. To the fact that I'm not from here. And that's probably another limiting decision that wasn't true. But I was thinking that way. So I was always very aware of myself and I felt embarrassed a lot. And I try to fit in. I try to, like, I, I, so I don't watch sports at all. But then people talk about sports a lot at dinner tables when we, you know, when we go out with these people. So I used to like study football rules and <laughs> all these things that I'm not even interested in just to like talk to people and fit in. So that was like the biggest challenge for me is to try and act like an American person. <laughs> and Even my boss told me that I don't have to be like that. Like, I can be just this Japanese Yuri and I can be just my authentic self and still manage people and still lead people. But I was like, no, I have to be an American. <laughs> so that was really hard for me. All right. So the corporate culture was, you know, kind of decoding. And, and,、um, and I can imagine Japanese has a different. Uh, you don't even use the same alphabet that we do in English. I mean, it, you, know, you guys write completely different. So I can't even imagine trying to learn English from your native language. Yeah, that was very interesting. It's a very different language. So that was like a challenge for me. And the、mm. way people think it's formed by the structure of language. So it's very interesting to see how, people, how people's logic w o r k in different languages. But you overcame it. That's amazing. I mean, you know,、um, you seem like you were somewhat successful in corporate world, you know, having your own coaching business, you have your podcast. So, and, you know, you speak very well. I would not have known that, you know, you struggled so much with English at the beginning, you know, I guess that full immersion really helped you.、Mm-hmm. Yeah. I take my challenges seriously. So I did take a lot of courses. Speech courses, like, all these things that, and it really helped me with my work. But I think it also helped me overcome my the feeling of inferiority. b 
by like doing all these things. This whole imposter syndrome that people talk about, it shows up in different ways for different people, right? And for immigrants, that's part of what you're expressing. Yeah, because I don't know why, but I just didn't want to be different. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I just didn't want to be an outsider. And the funny thing is there's so many of us in this, uh, people call it melting pot or our salad bowl. This is a new one I hear lately, the salad bowl, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Because we're not all melting because people still are maintaining part of their cultures from the different countries that they're coming from and living here in the United States. So a lot of us feel the same way. We're different. We're not in a majority environment like the one we were born and raised in. And so you feel like you stand out. And I suppose as a coach, you can reframe that to say, in certain sense, as an entrepreneur, you want to stand out because in marketing and in sales, right, there's different results if you're standing out in front of the crowd. But it can be challenging as well, psychologically, right, to constantly being the one to be just sticking out, (laughs) right? Yeah, so I, I like it much better. <laughs> I'm trying to fit in, but somewhere you don't really need to fit in. And I, I think this whole, you know, the process of struggle, overcoming your challenges, I think it really helps you as a human being. And you just learn and you develop yourself, you develop your maturity. I'm intrigued by how over the years, it sounds like you remained in the United States and probably just visited Japan. Where are your parents now and how did you balance the Japanese and the American culture with raising your children and also communicating and interacting with your parents? Because I imagine you're a different person today as a Japanese from the person that they're used to when you left home. Yeah, definitely. It wasn't until I went through my own transformation through coaching, I did have a challenge talking to my mom. My father passed away and it was a a little bit of a challenge for me at the time because I couldn't go back to Japan because of COVID. This this is during pandemic. Oh, Um, wow. Yeah, so I haven't even gone back. (laughs) So thank you. So I'm going back for the first time since 2019 this summer. So I'm super Mm -hmm. excited about it. But after I went through my you know, personal development through coaching, I finally released like my emotions, like negative emotions around my relationship with my mother. So I no longer have any like struggles with that, but I did have a lot of struggles with her, like trying to control me, even when I'm here, trying to control the way I raise my kids, even when I'm here, you know, that's how I felt. And I would have to like push back and I would have to stop talking to her for a while but yeah, now it's much better because I don't have these feelings against her. But she probably thinks that I'm like a different, like a completely different person. I was like used to be a very obedient, nice Japanese person. And now I'm like, I talk a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You're the rebel. You're the rebel. You're now a rebel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and for the kids, I think I, I try to introduce them to Japanese culture by sending them to a Japanese preschool. But as soon as they started the local elementary school, they forgot like everything. They they don't speak Japanese anymore. But it's okay. They they will still get exposure through our travels, you know, trips to there. And if they want to immerse themselves in the future, they'll probably do that themselves. 
Right. Do you think the culture, the Japanese culture has changed since, like you said, they opened interacting with the rest of the world after being closed for over 300 years? Now that you've now worked, studied, worked, lived in the United States, raising your children, how is it when you go back and, and how do you see changes that may happen over the years? Yeah, I think it's changed quite a bit. I don't know if it's me that changed or if it's them that changed, but I no longer feel like I belong there, which is sad. I think that happens a lot to immigrants. It's like you're kind of like in between, (laughs) in between feeling. The economy has been really bad there. I, I guess it never like fully recovered from the great recession they had right before I came here. So it's been like a long time, like quarter of a century so people are more worried about the future and they cling to the stability like the whatever stability the sense of security and stability they have it just seems like a very different place from when i was growing up it was more like go 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 let's go (laughs) it was more like a positive energy but now it's i feel when i go back i feel that it's more defensive energy and it's kind of sad But yeah, it could be that I I changed. I I don't really know. But it's still like a very, very nice place to visit. People are nice and the country Mm -hmm. is beautiful. I can relate because, you know, after being here for 20 plus 23 years, I think approximately from Jamaica, the way I speak has changed as has evolved. I I've studied Spanish, studied French, lived in different countries I don't really know what I sound like. So when I go back to Jamaica and I speak like normally, people can immediately pick up. I'm, she's not, you know, she sounds different. She may have Jamaican roots, but she doesn't sound like us anymore. And so when I'm here in the United States and then I speak, people say, immediately say, okay, you have an accent. So you weren't born here. You're not really from here. And so I don't really get accepted as fully American. Mm-hmm. So it's there's like this third culture that I find myself in all the time. Yeah. And though I love, love, love Jamaica and want to have my daughter grow up there and experience the education that I received while growing up and would love to probably retire there, or even work remotely from there. Mm-hmm. There are things about it that has changed that I feel like I don't really understand or I was so young when I was there growing up that I didn't understand certain parts of the culture. But now I'm older, I can see it in a different light and see it more clearly. And so there are things about the culture that I don't necessarily like and um, don't want to be a part of. So, you know, I, I, I get what you're saying with the changes that are happening in the country. And the economy has changed too as well. I hear my parents say the story of things things are not the same as when I, we were growing up or I can say that, you know, things have changed over the years. But the interesting, other interesting comment that I have is that I, as I listen to you, you're saying that the Japanese economy has been struggling since you left. But the general impression is that the Japanese yen is very strong against the dollar and the pound. So can you explain how is it that the economy is struggling in in people who live there in their eyes? But we think the country, the economy seems to be, the yen is always, as I can remember, seems to be strong up there. Um, right now, it's actually really bad. But um, even before then, so I think what happened was in the 80s, there was a bubble economy and then it crashed. And then 
it didn't go back up for a long time while the rest of the world was booming. Like China and India, all these countries came into the view of the world economy and Japan was still struggling. So they try to catch up by reinventing manufacturing. I think there was a movement to reinvent manufacturing because that's where they are really strong in, like、mm. at least in the past.、Yeah. But then, then, but the rest of the world was going toward like, you know, what GAFA's doing, like the technology, you know, taking over the world with technology. And China definitely went into that direction. But I think Japan was a little slow in catching up.、Mm. So it just seems like a little bit of like an older economy now. Especially with all these people that are, I forgot the percentage, but I think like third of the country is over 60 year old or something, or even more. So the society is maturing, the society, the, the general population is getting older, and a lot of people who led the economic boom already retired or are retiring. So the, I feel that there are some needs for. Emerging industry to lead the economy there for it to be more internationally competitive. But I think they're struggling with that.、Mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. With the globalization, everybody trying to find their niche, right? Yeah. And it, I also see a sad trend there that they used to be more equitable there. But now there seems to be a more Discrepancy between haves and have nots because they changed some regulations around how people can work. And women, especially after they start the family, they were given like opportunities to work as temporary staff, but then they get much less pay.、Mm. So then the equity in pay between、mm-hmm. the genders actually increased.、Mm. Similar issues that we're dealing with here, too, right?、Yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. In some way, they were making a progress toward like more equity, and then now it went backwards. So, I'm wondering have you been able to show up in, at work in social settings as your true Japanese immigrant self, or were you always just this hyphenated Japanese American, a foreigner, and you either had to just fully become American in order to be received? How has that experience been for you? I think I was a wannabe, <laughs> wannabe American for a long, long time. Like I just、mm. wanted, like I said, I just wanted to fit in. I don't have that anymore. It might be because of my age, or I just don't care anymore. I spent most of my life trying to fit in, <laughs> and I don't know what I was trying to fit in now. But I'm wondering if you were looking for. Did you find a Japanese community, and do you think you were seeking after like just a community of just belonging since you were away from home? Mm, I did have that at one point. I try to, that's when I was studying tea ceremony. I try to create my own little Japanese community. Yeah, but looking back, I don't think it's even about the nationality. I think it was just that I was trying to chase something that's, that doesn't even exist. I mean, like, what's an American person? You know, <laughs> it's like so multifaceted. And I didn't even like realize that. Like, I thought that, okay, so if you act like,、uh, This person in a Hollywood movie, you're an American, you know, <laughs> but it's not true. So I think I was just probably 
the fact that I live in a foreign country really exaggerated my already existing struggle about not knowing who I am. This strong desire to fit in. I used to look around, look at all these other people around me and try and behave like them. And that was the necessary part of my personal development that no, I don't have to be like them. I don't have to be this average American person, whoever that is. I think because I realized that I can be fully myself, I'm now I'm more comfortable. I, I was finally able to leave the corporate world because I accepted that. I'm like, oh, okay, this is my life. I can just be myself. I don't have to be like anybody else. And so now I used to have this fear of like social gatherings when I don't know anybody because I don't know if I'm going to fit in or not. But now like it's so much easier because I can just show up to like, like, like kids gatherings and I can just be myself. You know, I don't have to please anybody. I don't have to impress anybody because nobody else is doing that. Well, some people might, but nobody has to do that, right? So <laughs> that was like a self-acceptance that I had to go through. I think we're all on that journey, Yuri, at some stage of that journey as immigrants, right? We leave as one person and we're now living in this new world and it's so different. We have to survive and, and get along with people. And so there's part of you that has to change right? As well mm. as holding on to those things that are important traditionally that are a part of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think we're all trying to figure that out. You're not the only one, so don't be so hard on yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So it said that success leaves clues. So I'm wondering, you know, like what clues are you now looking back on your life that you wish you knew when you were starting your immigrant journey here in the United States? I think it was partly because of my limiting belief about money that I talked about and also the like the visa status that I had mm-hmm. in my um, 20s. I could have been more bold, but I was always looking for stability and security. So I wanted to make sure that my visa, like my first priority for getting a job was to get a visa and then get a, get good money. And along the way, I wanted to do so many things. Like I wanted to go back to school or choose a different career along the way. But I didn't do any of that because I was so worried about the future. And I don't know why I was so worried about the future because I was so young and I had no responsibilities whatsoever. But maybe other immigrants might be able to relate to this because you kind of like, you feel like you're on a shaky ground just because you're in a different place or I don't know. I don't know what it was, but for me, it was money and visa. I was always, always opting for security. So if I could go back, then I would just do something that are more aligned to my own desire, regardless of how much secure it seems. Like now I believe fully that when there's a will, there's always a way for doing something. But back then I didn't believe that. I know a lot of international students are this your your story is going to resonate with because you know it's it's challenging. They come over as students, they want to find that lovely paying job here in the United States since they've studied here. And sometimes it can be difficult making that transition from an F1 to yeah, um, yeah. you know something more permanent. So, you know, I'm thinking Maslow's hierarchy five hierarchy of needs come to mind Mm. you know you mentioned security 
that you were like just in that space for a long time, like you safety needs are important, right? Mm-hmm. I think they're like second on the tier going up. So psychological, physiological needs, safety needs, love and belonging, esteem, and then sex self actualization. And I, you know, when those things aren't taken care of, and if you're not safe and you're, you know, you need, you have to take care of food and shelter and those things, then, you know, you're just in that space there for a moment until those are cared for. And then you move up the, so it sounds like you're in the space between uh, either love and belonging, esteem and and going towards self-actualization, which is awesome. We're all working to get there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm so glad I got to this place and not worry about security anymore. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So many people out there who may be listening are still there. I mean, a lot of immigrants coming and they have to hustle for years to kind of make ends meet. And the economy right now, we're heading towards a recession. They're saying the official date, July 28, is when we're supposed to know whether we're in a a recession. And um, then we were in a pandemic. And, you know, I can't just imagine for international students what it has been like for over the last two years. There were threats for them um, being forced out of the country at one point. And I can't imagine, I, I didn't have to walk that journey, thankful to my parents and family for that. But the stress and the challenges for international students, it's a very real thing. So, yes, you know, yes. so seek support. <laughs> you know, I hope that there's some sort of a meetup group or some circle for international students where you guys can get together and support each other out there, whatever city you find, you may find yourself in, whoever's listening, seek out community because that might, you may find information or just emotional or psychological safety or support just in talking to other students who are in the same boat as you. Okay. So what, any other advice you may have for whether it be international students or other immigrants who are new to the United States about how to become successful, to have a more abundant immigrant journey, a peaceful one, right? Because it can be hectic for people making that adjustment and stressful too. Yeah, I would say to find friends that can help you, you know, you can be open-minded and you don't have to get stuck in your own way. People will always help you. The society is so diverse. There's always a place for you. You can like always find home here. So just be open to people and build relationships. Okay, wonderful. So I know you've transitioned into coaching services. How do people find your services? Would you like to put a plug in for that right now? Sure. All my social media and my website, they're all in Japanese, but I do coach in English too. So if people are interested in, in my services, they can just email me at info at ured-media.com. Okay. And are you on LinkedIn as well? I am. I am. If you look for me with my name, Yuri Damitz, D-A-M-I-T-Z, and you can find me. I have to update it. I haven't updated it for so long. All right. Yep. So those are two ways for people to find you. We appreciate the journey that you've taken us on today, Yuri. Any final words that you'd like to share with our audience? Oh, no, thank you very much for your listening to my story. This has been really healing, actually. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> it's healing for me. And I've heard the very same for others of my guests, that it's very healing to finally 
tell the story nobody has ever asked. And so (laughs) that's why we exist. It's It's to talk about it, you know? Yeah. So those who are Japanese here in the United States who might be listening and might be interested in your podcast, would you care to share a bit about it and for people to find you? Yeah. Um, so my podcast is for women. So I have interviews with people around the world, Japanese women working around the world. And I also have solo episodes where I talk about different limiting beliefs people might have or just how to navigate your work and career. And if you're interested, it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc., Google Play. And it's called <laughs> and in English, word. and in English. So in English, I think maybe if you search by Happily Ever After podcast, you might get it. Okay. All right. But it's all in Japanese. So for anyone who are, who's interested, you'd need to be able to speak Japanese in order to listen in. Yes. My website is www.yuri-media.com. So if you go there, you can see the link to the podcast. Awesome. Awesome. So people should be able to find you then. So we so appreciate your time. I really did enjoy. And now I have to get to, I love teas. So I, I'm like intrigued as to where here in the United States, I can find that experience and yeah, that karaoke experience that you mentioned <laughs> too. So those two stand out for me. So there's safety in a multitude of counsel. And we encourage you listeners to find community, ask questions Share your struggles and successes with others. So as immigrants, each one, teach one. So we hope that you've been encouraged by listening to Yuri's story. And thank you for joining us again on another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America. Stay healthy and walk good. Tune in next week for another episode of The Immigrant Experience in America. As this is a new podcast, we welcome any and all support. If you have not done so already, subscribe on the Apple Podcast app, Google Podcast app, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also support us by completing a five-star rating and review and sharing our podcast with your friends, family, and circle of influence.